Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you are enjoying these studies, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Last week after the class, I was, I was so excited about it that I had to go home. When I went home, I had to write to my brother about, about this great insight. The things were just clicking. But anyway, um, so I'll tell you what it was the plot of the book of Isaiah. Normally we don't think of a book of the prophets as having a plot, but at least in terms of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, I think there's a plot. And I think the, the plot of the book is this, that Hashem sends his servant Isaiah to bring the nation to repent before disaster befalls them. Because while Isaiah is ministering, disaster befalls the north, and they're carried off into exile, the Assyrian exile. And the same doom is coming down on Judah. And Isaiah is on a mission, we learned last week in his calling. He was called to go and bring the nation to repentance and avert this disaster. The question is, will he be able to do it? Well, here's the thing. He needs the cooperation of the monarch in order to bring the nation to repentance. And as we will see, he doesn't get the cooperation of King Ahaz, we're going to learn tonight, but he does get the cooperation of Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And Isaiah, in combination with Micah, we learn this from the prophet Jeremiah, by the way, who's giving us a little flashback, he says that these prophets were able to bring King Hezekiah to repentance. And he brought the whole nation to repentance and, in fact, averted the disaster. The plot of the book of Isaiah is about a prophet raising up a godly king or bringing, bringing a, uh, one of the sons of David to repentance to serve as that, to serve as that redeemer king who can save the nation from exile. It's a very messianic story. And so what was it that I, I uh, was speaking with Sylvia and I had this uh, hine moment, you know, a hine moment. It's like, behold. I suddenly realized that the seemingly disconnected story at the end of Isaiah 1 through 39, the first part of the book of Isaiah, of Isaiah's sickness and then recovery is actually symbolic for the whole story of the book of Isaiah. The nation is the sick man that has the death sentence from the prophet. Remember the prophet Isaiah goes and says to Hezekiah, you're going to die. Get your affairs in order. What does Hezekiah do? He turns to the wall, he prays, he repents. And before Isaiah has even gotten home, Hashem reverses the death sentence. See, what's, this is a metaphor. I'm not saying that didn't literally happen, but it's a metaphor for the whole larger story, the meta-narrative, I guess you could say, of the book of Isaiah, but not just the book of Isaiah, but the whole meta-narrative of the Bible, which is all about exile and redemption. Hezekiah represents the whole nation as the king of Israel, the king of Judah. And just as Hezekiah repented and was spared, he was given several more years, so too the kingdom of Judah repents, and on the brink of disaster, 
on the edge of the volcano as they're facing down the Assyrians and there's only one city left standing of all the fortified cities of Judah. And that's Jerusalem. At that moment, Hashem reverses the decree, sends the Assyrians home, and gives the nation of Judah a new lease on life another century or so. So I believe that is, uh, that's, that's the plot. And if we understand, now that we have, uh, we have the plot, we're going to be able to understand the whole story a lot better. Last week we learned about King Uzziah. And in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had his vision and his calling, and that was the beginning of his ministry. Remember how we learned that Isaiah chapter 6 is actually the beginning of the prophetic ministry of Isaiah, even though it comes six chapters in. Uh, chapters 1 through 5 are more of an introduction. Here are some prophecies of Isaiah. And then in chapter 6, we get the calling of Isaiah, uh, his, um, the, be- the beginning of his ministry as a prophet. And so we studied chapter 6, and then and we found some uh, New Testament references to chapter 6. This week we're going to go on into chapter 7. Chapter 6 began with the words, in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, his son Jotham... Remember, Uzziah was the leper king. His son Jotham took over the throne. So let's go to 2 Kings, pick up the story. We were learning the story a little bit last time. We'll pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel. Remember this guy? He's the assassin king. He assassinated the previous king, who had a name very similar to his own, uh, Pekakia. Uh, he assassinated Pekakia and took his place. And so this is Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel. Uh, so in the second year of his reign, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. So this is the year King Uzziah died. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was, was uh, Yerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. He was a godly king like his father. Only thing is the high places weren't taken away. Yeah, but you know, other than that, he was pretty good. People still sacrificed and burned incense to the high places, but other than that, he was, and they were they were worshiping Hashem at the high places. But other than that, he was, you know, and he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. And the rest of the acts of Jotham were pretty boring, and they're all written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. But now here's the thing. In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Aram. That's Aram, also Syria, called Syria, um, from Damascus, the king of Damascus. Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekak, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. Now, what's wrong with this? What you've got here is civil war, basically, more or less. I mean, the at least within the house of Israel, because Pekah is the king of the north. And so he's allied with the Syrians to go to war against Judah. And Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, his son, became king in his place. All right. Now here's Ahaz. Ahaz, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia. Ahaz, the son of Jotham, 
king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old. You know the way 20-year-olds are. When he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That is the kings of the north like Ahab and Jeroboam and Pekah. And he even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense in the high places and the hills under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekach, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war. And they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overcome him. And at that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered a lot for Aram and and, and cleared the Judeans out of Elat completely, and the, and the Aramaeans came to Elat and lived there to this day. What I want you to see here is in this war, and you know what we could do, but we're not going to do, but what we could do is we could go and look at the account in Second Chronicles, I believe it's in Second Chronicles, of this war. It's pretty, what happens is Israel comes down, with their armies aligned with the Syrians, allied with the Syrians, and they totally beat the snot out of Jotham and out of Ahaz and, and out, of, out of Ahaz's armies, the men of Judah, and they carry off thousands and thousands of Judeans, uh, people of Judah, into captivity. And they're taking them off as slaves to, to serve in the, in the north. And then a prophet, I believe his name is you can correct me if anybody knows better, but I think his name is Obed. This prophet, Obed, shows up on the scene. There he is, and he's, he, challenges, he challenges the armies of Israel, and he says, this is not right what you're doing, taking the Lord's people as slaves. And, and he denounces, and uh, it's, it's, there's a, quite an interesting story in the release, but that's, that's not what we're going to learn tonight. That's a, just another interesting story that we could learn. Instead, turn to Isaiah chapter 7. I had to tell you all that just to give you the background for Isaiah chapter 7. What do you think, first of all, what do you think is going on here? Why is Pekak allied with Syria in the first place, with, with Aram in the first place? Do you remember last week when I read you this news flash from... The, it, from Israel, from the north. It said in Second Kings fifteen twenty nine, in the days of Pekak, king of Israel, Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ion and Abel Bekmah and uh, Janoa and Kadesh and Hazor, Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them away captive to Assyria. Remember that. You see, the Assyrian Empire had already made its first incursion and the first deportation of Jewish people from the north. And so he's looking around and saying, who will stand with me against this juggernaut, Assyria? We need to get together. We need to stand together or we're going to stand separately. No, fall separately. Uh, hang together or hang. You know what I'm talking about. And so he says to Syria, and he says to the, to, uh, the king of, uh, of Damascus, Rezin, he says, Rezin, are you with me? Rezin says, I'm with you. So then he says to the he says to the king of Judah, Ahaz, are you with us? Ahaz, not with us. And so 
They said, well, okay, we'll take you out. We'll take the house of David out and we'll put our own man on the throne of Judah, someone who will be loyal to our anti-Assyrian coalition. It's politics, okay? This is just politics, ancient, ancient Near Eastern politics. That's what's going on here. Now we drop into, this, into the text of Isaiah. I've got to go faster. Isaiah chapter 7. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. It's great poetry, isn't it? Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Yashuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. We'll come back to that son, that son of Isaiah, the son of Isaiah, Shear Yashuv. It's a funny name, actually. It sounds funny. Even it, I mean, it sounded funny even then, is, is my point. Uh, so he says, go out, meet the king. The king is out, he's, he's out, he's, the king's out looking at his fortifications. He's getting ready for siege. He says, go out and meet the king and say to him, take care, be calm, have no fear. Do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin of Aram, uh, and, and, and the son of Ramalia. Notice how Hashem doesn't even say Pekah. See, when, when you're really angry with someone, you don't say their first name, right? You just use their last name. Like when King Saul says to Jonathan, he says, where's the son of Jesse tonight? Yeah, so that's, he says, he says, and the son of Ramalia is holding him at his arm's length. Because Aram uh, with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah, terrorize it. Make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up Tabil as king in the midst of it. So they even had their man picked out that they were going to put on the throne of David uh, to replace Ahaz. Thus says the Lord God. Here comes the prophecy. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of... now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you shall surely not endure. You shall surely not last. So, the, the prophecy is, they're not going to succeed. You don't have to worry about them. And not only that, not only are they not going to be able to take Jerusalem, but in the near future, within a generation or so, uh, these, they're not even going to be a nation anymore. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, and this is, Hashem says, you don't believe me? Okay, ask a sign for yourself, for the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. Now this is the, 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 the greatest blank check that's ever been given to anyone at any time. Now, if the prophet Isaiah comes to you, and he says, he gives you a prophecy and then says, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. You could ask, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, my mind's already working it. It's like, um, well, if there's $3 million in my bank account tomorrow morning, then I'll believe you. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, this is like the ultimate fleece opportunity, right? To, to put out a fleece, right? Ahaz is the greatest fool. Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord, Isaiah says. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, okay, God will choose the sign that he's going to give you. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land of those two kings that you dread will be forsaken. All right, so this is the prophecy. This is the first prophecy we're, getting, we're looking at here. You know, anti-missionaries always like to say, well, it says, you know, obviously it says, this is the Alma, and an Alma isn't necessarily a virgin, could just be a young girl. Well, that's to miss the point. Of course it could be a young girl. I mean, we didn't have two virgin births. Here's what the Christians always miss. This prophecy has to be answered in the days of King Ahaz, or it fails to be assigned to him. It has to happen. This child has to be born in the days of King Ahaz, or the whole prophecy falls apart. I mean, how do you, how do you answer that? It was like, well, it's all right. This is okay. This is just you know, this is this is the way that uh, we handle the scriptures in in Judaism. You, know, you can scriptures can have more than one meaning and more than one fulfillment. It was answered in the days of of King Ahaz. You know who it was? Hezekiah. This is talk, this is a prophecy about the birth of Hezekiah. So we actually know the name of the virgin in question. Her name is Abibat Zechariah. That's Hezekiah's mom. Yeah. Uh, well, you say, how can it be Hezekiah? It says she will call his name Emmanuel. Well, all right. <laughs> how can uh, how can we call him Yeshua? It said that she'll call his name and they'll call him Emmanuel, right? Em- Emmanuel is is not so much a proper name as it is a statement of faith. Emmanuel means God is with us. God is with us, right? So I mean, you can use it as a proper name, but uh, that's it's more about the statement of faith. So in other words, what he just said is. This threat, this threat from Syria and Israel, you don't have to worry about it, King Ahaz. Just trust Hashem. And here's the proof. Here's, here's, here's the sign, since you won't ask for a sign. Here's how you'll know that the Lord has spoken. Your wife, one of the girls, a virgin uh, or an Alma, a young girl in your harem, uh, your wife will have a son and she will name him Emmanuel. Before he's a teenager, Assyria will destroy both the kingdoms that you're afraid of, both Aram and Israel, or both Aram and Ephraim. That's the literal, in-text meaning of the prophecy. What, is, what, 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 what does he do? What's he do? I mean, it's, you know, when it says he will eat curds and honey, at the time he, he knows enough to, choose, to, to refuse evil and choose good. So this is like, what, you know, when you, I'm not sure if that is like when he's a teenager or if when he's, I don't know what age that indicates. And there's discussion about that. But to eat curds and honey is not a good sign. To eat curds and honey is 
basically, as you read, and you pick this up as you read on in the prophecies, is to live off of the remnant in the land that's left after the destruction. So you have a cow, <laughs> and um, and that's a, and and you're getting the, the milk from the cow, and that's about it. Or you have a goat. You have a goat. The honey is, of course, you're living off the land, essentially. The agriculture is destroyed. The Lord will bring on you and your people on your father's house such days as has never come upon since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle on the steep ravines and the ledges, the cliffs and the thorn bushes and all the watering places. And the Lord will shave with a razor higher from the regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair and the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Now it shall be, uh, in that day, a man may keep alive a heifer, a pair of sheep, and because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds, for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey, and it will come about in that day that every place where they used to be a thousand vines, valued at a thousand shekels of silver, it will be briars and thorns, and people will come there with bow and arrow, because the land will all be briar and thorns, it'll only be good for hunting, you know, it's no longer agricultural. And all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not get there, uh, you will not go there for free of the fear of the briars and thorns, which is a, until you've really been in, in Israel and, and experienced those briars and thorns, <laughs> you know, maybe don't understand, but they are an effective deterrent. <laughs> yeah. So people won't go there for fear of the briars and thorns. But they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. He refuses the word of Isaiah. Instead, here's what Ahaz did. We could read it in Second Kings 16. I've got it on your sheet, though. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant, your son. Come up, deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are rising up against me. And Ahaz took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the kings of the house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria. So he made an alliance with Assyria against the northern coalition of Syria and Aram. Rather than relying on Hashem, he allied with, he made a deal with the devil. And in fact, he goes then to Assyria and he sees an altar he likes, and he says, wow, we should have an altar like that in the temple of Hashem. And he sends back, he sends back a diagram and directions and tells the priesthood, when I get back, I want to have an altar like this, like this Assyrian altar in the temple. And, uh, and, and you can put this up and, um, and he brings all these Assyrian, uh, ally, you know, foreign worship into, into the, the worship of Hashem. I guess this is a fail for Isaiah. This is his first, his first time really out of the box, trying to be a prophet and, bring a king to repentance. So let's read on a little bit. Then the Lord said to me, Isaiah speaking, uh, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, write on it, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. All right, what does it mean? It means uh, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest and Zechariah, Uriah is the high priest, and Zechariah the son of Jebarechiah. 
So I approached the prophetess, his wife. She conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Macher Shalal Chashbaz, uh, which is swift as the booty and speedy as the prey. Strange name for a boy. So they, um, they probably called him, you know, Maher. They probably called him Maher. Harry. Harry, I think, is what it, it came down to. Maher, Maher Shalal Chashbaz. Or, you know, Chashbaz on, on the basketball court. But, um, but you know, it wasn't so strange because his older brother was, uh, was named Shear uh, Yeshuv, which means uh, a remnant will return. Isn't that interesting? So Isaiah has two sons, and one is named for the exile, and one is named for the redemption. The firstborn is named for the redemption. A remnant will return. The second son is named for the exile. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. So he's named after the Assyrian invasion that's coming, that I'm predicting. This is this is going to be a theme through the book of Isaiah, is this prediction of this coming disaster. And here's, here's the prophecy. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, What are the gently flowing waters of Shiloh? Well, if you've been to Israel, you know the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, right? This is the, uh, the Shiloh is the main spring the city of Jerusalem was built around. And so, you go through Hezekiah's tunnel, that's Hezekiah's water diversion tunnel to divert the water of the spring under the wall of Jerusalem during a time of siege. And um, so, or the pool of Siloam, for example, where the master sends, uh, sends the blind man to watch. This is, that's actually, uh, in Hebrew, that's Shiloach, the pool of Shiloach. So the Shiloach represents Zion. It represents Zion. It represents the, the promises to David. Uh, the, it represents the city of David. It represents, really, uh, the, since the promise of, to David, uh, it represents the Messianic promise. So it says, the people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in resin and the son of Ramalia. So now what we see here is that Isaiah is, Isaiah is referring to uh, there are people in Judah who are cheering for the north and for, for this coalition, this anti-Assyrian coalition. They're cheering for resin and for Pekak and saying, oh, I hope that they manage to get down here and take Ahaz off the throne. So in other words, they've rejected the Davidic monarchy, the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. See, whereas the Shiloh was the Davidic monarchy flowing there, what is the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates? Just in case we don't know, he tells us the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over the channels and go over all its banks and sweep on into Judah, overflow, pass through, reach even to the next spread, uh, the, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land. It's a, another prophecy of an Assyrian invasion that will come down into Judah. And then the prophecy ends with the words, Oh, Emmanuel. It's more of a petition. 
God with us. God be with us in this case. We have to read on because this is a... We're, we're doing just fine. We're doing just fine. But you see, we have to get into chapter 9 before we, we're, we're done. Be broken, O peoples, and shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, be shattered. Gird yourselves, be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. This is the word. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Uh, which is, for God is with us, is once again the Immanuel. Right? So you see this, and it's running through all these prophecies. God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. Devise a plan, it will be thwarted. State a proposal will not stand. It's Utsu, Eitsa, uh, the Tufar, Dabri, Davar, Velo, Yakum, Ki, Emmanuel. And it's got a really snappy chorus. Yeah, really, really a clever little jingle. Um, I always thought we should make it our theme song here. But, uh, We'll come back to this. For God is with us. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, and now here's a word from the Lord for the whole Messianic movement. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. What I mean by that is that, of course, that we have a lot of conspiracy theory people that seem to be drawn to things messianic. But um, that's why I say this is a word for the whole messianic movement. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all the things that this people call a conspiracy. Everybody should memorize that because you could. that's one verse I guarantee you could probably use like every Sabbath. Uh, and you are not to fear what they fear or to be in dread of it. Rather, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. And, and if he is, then, then he shall become a mikdash. He'll be a sanctuary. Both, but he'll be your, he'll be like your temple. But to both the houses of Israel. And when it says both the houses of Israel, then we mean both kingdoms. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. But to both the houses of Israel, he will be a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, and then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Wow. Okay. We'll come back to this, but this doesn't sound good. Hashem is saying... Don't get involved in these, you know, these political uh, calling a conspiracy. This is consp these these political conspiracies, these um, these alliances, this these intrigues, these court intrigues that are going on. And hey, let's remove Ahaz and put Tabil in his place, and and we'll side with uh, Rezin and this sort of thing. You shouldn't be afraid of what they're afraid of. You shouldn't be involved. You should trust Hashem. Just simple trust in Hashem. And if you would do that, then, then Hashem would be a mikdash for you. He'd be a sanctuary for you. Instead, because you're not doing that, what is He going to be for you? He's going to be a stone that both the north and the south trip over and are shattered on. All right, it goes on. Bind up the testimony, seal the Torah among my disciples, and I will 
wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. This is Isaiah speaking again. Isaiah is breaking into the prophecy and we hear his voice. He's saying, he's, he's, now he's speaking of his own household and his disciples, his immediate disciples. He says, we will wait for redemption. We'll hold on to the Torah. We'll hold on to the testimony of Hashem. We'll hold on to the Torah and we will wait for redemption. Even though he's, he's, uh, he's turned his face from the house of Jacob, we will eagerly look for him. You know, I wait for him every day, sort of thing. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion, Isaiah says. Well, the children that God has given him are signs, aren't they? I mean, their names are signs. That's his point there. When they say to you, consult the medium and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? In other words, come to me, I'm the prophet here. Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the Torah and to the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land of hard-pressed, famished. It will turn, uh, it will turn out when, when they are hungry. They will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward and they will look then, you know, the, you know, you're like raging at Hashem. You know, how could you let it go like this? You know, how could you let this happen? And then, uh, they, so they turn their face upward to curse at Hashem and it says, then they will look to the earth being buried. Behold, distress and darkness, gloom, anguish they will be driven away into darkness. So you can kind of see how this works. I mean, reading the prophets, you understand kind of, you have to read the prophets in dialogue with, uh, with the historical narratives. You get, it's quite a rich story going on here. And it's amazing that you can get that far into the minds and into the times of, of the ancient world. Anyway, uh, we got a little bit further to press on. Some good news now. But there will be no more gloom for her, her who was in anguish in earlier times, Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Why does he call it Galilee of the Gentiles? He's actually describing a huge swath of territory that goes from what you would call Gilead, uh, on the other side of the Jordan, all the way across the north, you know, you've got the Sea of Galilee there and the Jordan River coming down and there's important trade routes cutting through here that go into the Jezreel Valley on their way out to the sea. So you've got this great, you know, very strategic swath of land. He's describing a big chunk of northern Israel. What is northern Israel today? What is the Galilee today? Okay. And he calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? There's even a, there's a, there's a, um, funny, um, there's a messianic, uh, mission in, I've never been there, uh, but some sort of messianic group in, um, up in Galilee called Galilee of the Gentiles. Have you ever heard of that? You know, Larry Cohen always wanted to start a company in Galilee called Cheeses, uh, that like, uh, Cheeses of Galilee. He thought that he could sell a lot, he could make a lot of money selling cheese. I don't know. Yeah? I don't know. Maybe he's making a go of it now. Right. Yeah, obviously, yeah, it would have to be goat cheese, right? Anyway, why is it called Galilee of the Gentiles? It's not a good name, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
It's called Galilee of the Gentiles because the Gentiles have overrun it. It's, Isaiah is referring back to that passage that I read you from 2 Kings, where it says Tiglath-Pileser came and captured all this territory, including Gilead and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them away captive to Assyria. So Isaiah is pointing back to this bad news, this exile that's already begun, and he says, in the future, there's going to be a redemption. And what's this, this redemption is going to look like this. It's going to be the people who walk in darkness, that's in exile, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, that's conquered by Assyria up in Galilee, uh, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with, uh, as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Uh, you'll, you'll break it as at the battle of Midian. Every boot and booted warrior and battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel, for fire, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You've heard these words before, I'm sure. The child that will be born to us is King Hezekiah, once again. This is the same child that was predicted in the virgin birth prophecy a couple chapters ago. This is the center, central plot, remember, of the book of Isaiah. Getting this godly king to lead the nation in repentance and avert this disaster that Isaiah is predicting all along here. You see how this is like, a, this is actually like, it's not just random stuff, like random Bible talk, but there's actually a whole uh, consistency here to what's going on. Anyway. This was what led Hillel, not Hillel uh, of Shemai and Hillel, but Rabbi Hillel II, uh, to, to make the statement, there shall be no Messiah for Israel because they already enjoyed him in the days of King Hezekiah. Uh, actually, he says, they already ate him in the days of King Hezekiah. Uh, the, the, sense of, the sense of the saying being, there is no beer left, you drank it all. <laughs> you know? There's no Messiah left, you... you uh, you used it all up in the days of King Hezekiah. So Rabbi Joseph, who is a colleague of his, said, may God forgive Hillel for saying this. <laughs> but Hillel's point is well taken, that, I, that, that this is Messiah talk. There's no question. The increase of his government will be without end? We're talking about the Messiah. But at the same time, Isaiah is talking about King Hezekiah. The sages are really firm on this. This is King Hezekiah. And it makes sense in the context of the book. That's, that's the king that we're waiting for. What's, you might be thinking, well, what's so great about King Hezekiah? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but King Hezekiah is the guy who leads the greatest reform that Israel has seen since the days of King David. 
I mean, actually, probably since Moses. King Hezekiah, the Messiah. Is he? Well, there's a problem with this text. The sages point out a problem with this text in Isaiah 9-7, where it says there will be no end to the increase of his government. Uh, If we're reading this in Hebrew, you would notice a small spelling error. You see, there's two ways that you can write the letter mem. One is a mem sofit, a final mem, and one, and that's closed. It's like a circle uh, or a square, uh, a square circle. Uh, and the and then there's the, uh, the the open mem, which you use in the middle of a word. So in this case, when it says of the increase, for the increase, le marbe, it uses a mem sofit in the middle of the word. It does not belong there. Does not belong. Mem sofit does not belong in the middle of the word. It's a spelling error. This is a... All right, but uh, the sages have said, well, you know, the Bible doesn't have spelling errors, does it? Every jot and tittle means something, right? You see it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so the Talmud explains that, that there's something being communicated here, that the, the closed mem indicates a mystical hidden teaching. Here's what it says in, in Shabbat 104. It says, the open mem and the closed mem signify open teaching and mysticism. So open mem symbolizes what's out on the table, but the closed mem, esoteric teaching. All right, so here's the esoteric teaching. Not really, but this is also in the Talmud. Whatever's in the Talmud is open. But another explanation, perhaps. This is from Sanhedrin 94a. It says there will be no increase to his government. Rabbi Tanhuma uh, ex- uh, related, uh, Rabbi Tanhum, uh, he related that Bar Kapara once expounded on this text while teaching in Sephoris. Uh, and he's explained it this way. He said, when the letter mem appears in the middle of the word, it's always an open mem. Why is this one closed? Uh, the Holy One, blessed be he, wanted to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 that this, we just read, uh, unto us a child is born. He wanted to fulfill the prophecy by appointing Hezekiah as the Messiah. If he had done that, the war with Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was to be the war of Gog and Magog. Then the attribute of justice complained before the Holy One, blessed be he, saying, Lord of the universe, if you did not deem David worthy to be the Messiah, even after he's saying so many hymns and psalms to you, is it really fair to make Hezekiah into the Messiah? He didn't compose a single hymn, (laughs) despite all the miracles that you did for him. Therefore, Hashem changes his mind, and God closed the letter Mem in Lamar Bay, And a voice from heaven cried out, The identity of the Messiah is my secret. It's closed. It's closed. It's my secret. That's in the Talmud. Yeah, right, right. Well, that's, uh, that's, 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 it's closed. You know, I mean, this is, uh, this is, this is what the Talmud says. Hezekiah could have been the Messiah. So this is a thought that we're going to keep in our minds through this class because it's going to help us to understand these prophecies. Uh, I think it's going to help a lot. I mean, on the one hand, you want to just throw something away like that and say, like, oh, that's crazy. Hezekiah, the Messiah, he's not the Son of God. But on the other hand, it's going to help a lot. You'll see. Assyria, Gog and Magog. Makes sense. Flip over the sheet of paper, and I'll read you how the Targum paraphrases Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. 
Oh, we gotta, we're only halfway through here now. It's already like, we only got like four minutes. All right, we'll do it. Um, <laughs> the Targum says, and uh, in, 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 this is the Targum, and it's a paraphrase. It's Aramaic paraphrase of, of the Old Testament. It says, well, this is what it really means. Isaiah 9, 6 or 7. The prophet said to the house of David. So now we've kind of changed already who it's being addressed. It's to the whole house of David. could come in at any time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he has taken the Torah upon himself to keep it. And his name is called from eternity. Wonderful, the mighty God who liveth to eternity, the Messiah whose peace shall be great upon us in his days. The greatness of those who do the Torah shall be magnified and to those that preserve peace. That's his government, those who do the Torah. There shall be no end to the throne of David and of his kingdom to establish it and to build it in judgment and in righteousness from henceforth forever by the word of the Lord, uh, by the word of the Lord of hosts, the memra of the Lord of hosts, this shall be done. It's a nice paraphrase. I thought you'd like that. All right, that's as far as we're going to go, actually, in the book of Isaiah. Um, I, but I, I, sh I, I still have to show you how all this is used in the New Testament. We're going to go to the New Testament and start with that virgin birth prophecy. All the prophets prophesy towards the days of Messiah. That's, that's the saying of the sages, that all the prophets prophesy about the days of Messiah. We see that also in the New Testament. It says, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward announce these days. Acts 3.24. So the apostles looked at the, at the book of Isaiah like as if they were reading about their day and age. And so it's not that they didn't know the historical meaning or understand the historical meaning. They certainly did. But they said Hashem is communicating about our times. It's prophecy. It can do that. It can mean more than one thing. And so when they read, for example, uh, the prophecy about that says a virgin shall conceive, the virgin shall conceive and she shall give birth. They read it not just in the literal sense of speaking of Ahaz's wife, but they read it saying, okay, well, this was to be the Messiah. This Hezekiah character is the Messianic. He, this is a prophecy about the son of David, the righteous coming son of David, who's going to restore and save the nation. That's the importance of, of this prophecy. And then Alma, they say, you know, I mean, I'm just imagining where the, the apostles sitting around thinking about this text. He says, doesn't Alma, doesn't Alma also mean virgin? I mean, doesn't it primarily mean a virgin? It doesn't, it doesn't mean just a young girl. I mean, and, and what, isn't there that story that James is always telling about how his mother, you know, was a virgin and, and this sort of, this, this miracle, the miraculous work? So they put this thing together like this, you know, and, and the, the angel's announcement, of course, made it obvious. I'm just saying that they were able to read this prophecy more than one way. And especially if they read it in Greek. I'm not, that, I don't think they did initially. But when Matthew wrote, or canonical Matthew wrote, and we got it in Greek, uh, the, all ambiguities moved, removed from the word Alma, whereas Alma could mean, could mean a young girl. Parthenos means virgin. So the Greek is and then if you're reading it in Greek, you're reading the, the scriptures of the Septuagint, you're reading it in Greek, you say, oh, there must be another fulfillment coming in the future of this prophecy. So this is how we get to the idea of using this text, reusing, I should say, reusing this text and applying it to the virgin birth, to the virgin conception 
of Yeshua. All right. There's a problem, though. The anti-missionaries point out, it says, she will call his name Emmanuel. But when Matthew quotes it, he says, they will call his name Emmanuel. What's going on? Why the difference? This is a stupid objection in the first place. It's a st- like as if this like, oh, well, I guess the New Testament's not true. I thought, you know, I really thought that Jesus was the Messiah and everything. But now I see that there's a, you know, it doesn't say she will call his name. It says they will call his name. I realize the whole thing's bunk. I mean, it's like, who gives these guys their material? I don't know. But nevertheless, the Evan Zohar had to answer this because he was writing a response to anti-missionary propaganda. So that's Rabbi Yechiel Lichtenstein. And he, he, he looked at this problem and he said, well, um, he said, in my opinion, in my opinion, it's just a, it's a question of uh, the way the Hebrew read in their version of the scroll. Because the words uh, she will call his name is Vakarat Shemo. And uh, he said, I think that their version of the scroll was just slightly different. And it said Vakara et Shmo. Do you see the difference if you look at the Hebrew lettering? Yeah, it's one letter, right? And then when you translate that into Greek, it would come in as they will name him. So this was his theory. That's a good theory. Uh, so he's saying... Uh, Thus, the proper translation back into Hebrew, if you were to translate this into Hebrew, it would be Vakara et Shmo. All right. So here's uh, the only reason I'm bringing you down this trail is just because Rabbi Lichtenstein wrote, oh, when did he write? About 1880, something like that. When did we find the Dead Sea Scrolls? 1947. 1947 copy of the book of Isaiah, exactly as Rabbi Lichtenstein predicted it would read, based on the reading in Matthew. It had the olive. It had... It had that spelling. It's amazing. It's a, that's an amazing find. That's an amazing prediction. And then, wow, exonerated uh, by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Take that, Isaac Trokey. Uh, he's, the, he's, the, he's the missionary. He was anti-missionary. He was responding to. All right. So that's uh, that's any questions on on Matt, Isaiah seven fourteen in Matthew one twenty three. I know that was kind of like a real quick treatment. Um, flip over to 1 Peter 3. See if you recognize this one. Verse 13. Peter's talking about uh, standing fast uh, against persecution. Actually, he's, he's, he's also speaking about just suffering, just the, the virtue and merit in suffering for doing good. He says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And then he quotes, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are being slandered, those who revile your your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That's a real simple one. I'm not sure why he took that particular quotation, but that's that was pulled right out of chapter 8, verse 12 of Isaiah, where it says, don't call everything that these people call a conspiracy a conspiracy. Don't be afraid of what they're afraid of. Rather, you should fear Hashem. And then he will be a sanctuary for you. So that's what you know, Peter grabbed, grabbed one line 
out of that text. I'll show you another. Turn back to chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Listen to this one. Verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Uh, that's Isaiah 28:16. We, we'll learn it later uh, in the class, God willing. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. And now a quotation from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and it became, and now a quotation from Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Wow, that's Midrash. That's straight-up apostolic Midrash. And it's actually one that was uh, begun by the Master when he said, in, he said uh, after the triumphal entry, he said the, the, to the priests, he said, and they're criticizing the children who are saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And, and, and he said, do you hear what these children are saying? And he said, have you never heard the saying, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And this, is, this invokes a whole story about King David and how his brothers didn't think that he was worthy to be king and, and so forth uh, in, in rabbinic le legend. But Peter's taken this, he's taken that saying of the master that he heard with his own ears, and he's built on it. He said, you know what else is a stone? <laughs> you know, he said, the master is the chief cornerstone. But you know what else is a stone? There's the stone of stumbling which, that, that, that is mentioned in Isaiah here. So according to Peter's reading of this stone of stumbling, remember it said both houses of Israel will stumble on this stone. That's the Messiah. He said, that's the Messiah there that, that, that's being referred to. And look at this, Romans chapter 9. Peter's Midrash, Paul liked it. Paul said, Peter, that's some pretty similar. And so Paul picks this up. In Romans chapter 9, he says, in uh, verse 30, I'm going to start reading in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even by the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law? God forbid. You know, we don't say that. Every time Paul says, what then shall we say? Remember, he's introducing a false premise. So everything, <laughs> which is oftentimes goes unnoticed. But this is a false premise. <laughs> what then shall we say? That the Gentiles didn't try at all and they became righteous and the Jews who were trying really hard, they didn't. <laughs> That's how people read it. Um, anyway, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. So here's the real reason. Here's the real reason, he says, why they did not arrive at it. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, or, or as you know, Jewish, Jewish status, so they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Paul pairs the same passages that Peter paired. Huh, alliteration. And um, he, he puts them together and uh, in the same way, with the same meanings. So this indicates that when you have that sort of thing, in two different sources, Romans was actually written long before First Peter, by the way, but when you when you have those two sets of ideas invoking the same passages with the same symbolic values, that indicates that there's, there's an oral tradition, a larger oral tradition in the, in the community that's being shared by the apostles. Anyway, um, well, 
Isn't that interesting? I don't know. Here's something really interesting that ties it up. The, the, the other Rabbi Lichtenstein, Isaac Lichtenstein, you can find this in the book Everlasting Jew, brings out this passage from the Talmud. This is a story from the Talmud. Judah and Hezekiah, the sons of Rabbi Chia, who were renowned as prophets, uh, sat at the table with Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was the redactor of the Mishnah, as you know. And as they're sitting there, they uttered not a word, which disappointed Judah the Prince because he was hoping to hear some prophecies or something. So he says, give the young men plenty of strong wine so they'll say something. <laughs> when the wine took effect, they begin by saying, the son of David cannot appear until the two ruling houses in Israel shall have come to an end, namely the head of the exile in Babylon and the, and the prince in the land of Israel. The head of the exile in Babylon, that's the uh, exilarch Babylonian Talmud. And the prince in the land of Israel, that's Rabbi Judah the prince whose table they're sitting at. He's the head of the schools in Israel, so his, he would be head of Yerushalmi, not just the Mishnah, but also you know, eventually becoming Yerushalmi. So it's, it's both Talmuds that are in view here. The sages from Babylon, the sages from Israel. Uh, so it says, The son of David cannot appear until the two ruling houses in Israel have come to an end, uh, as it's written, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses. So according to this passage, even the Talmud, even the, the, these two prophets, these two young prophets, identify the stone of stumbling as the Messiah. I thought that was pretty great. Just like, just like Peter and just like Paul. So as the story goes on, Rabbi Judah the Prince says, What? You've thrown thorns in my eyes. See, he's offended that they would say this at his own table. Rabbi Hia, the father of the two boys, is sitting there and he says, he says Well, you know the... The gematria, uh, the numerical value of the word yayin, is the same as the numerical value of the word sowed. The numerical value of wine is the same as the numerical value of, of, of secret, of secrets. Yayin goes in, sowed comes out. <laughs> it's a great story. So the only difference then is that in, in this case, since these, these two houses are talking about the north and the south, these prophets reassigned the symbolism to refer to the two centers of the Jewish people, two centers of Jewish nation. We're going to skip the Hebrews one because I'm just running out of time. I'm out of time. Uh, you can look it up yourself. But uh, where Isaiah says, uh, he makes this statement about, uh, here I am, me and my children. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews takes those words, puts them in the mouth of Messiah in Hebrews chapter 2.13. Then, finally, very quickly, the great light. You probably recognized it. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, those walking in darkness. So we pick this up in Matthew 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Yeshua has just left Nazareth. Uh, he left Nazareth. He said, prophet's not welcome in his hometown. Prophet's not honored in his hometown. He moves to the Sea of Galilee, to a little fishing village on the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. Uh, Matthew brings this text from Isaiah to explain what's going on. Starting in verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he came to Capernaum and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region 
uh, of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was written by Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time he began to preach, and here's the gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's the gospel message. That's the same thing that Isaiah was preaching. Matthew quotes this prophecy. And what's interesting about this, that Nazareth sits in Zebulun. This is why Matthew was attracted to this. Nazareth sits in the territory of Zebulun. And Yeshua left Zebulun then, and he went to Capernaum, which sits in the territory of Naphtali, which is by the sea, by the lake, right? The Sea of Galilee. Matthew believes that he's fulfilling this prophecy that Isaiah made. It's very nice, and it is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair thing to say. Because if Yeshua is the Messiah, then he is the Redeemer that's going to bring this light to the darkness of exile that Isaiah was speaking of in the first place by gathering the tribes back, gathering the exiles back to the land. So it's, it's a fair use of, of the passage. All right, here's how the Zohar uses the passage. It says regarding Messiah, he will arise in the land of Galilee. And on that day, the whole world will be shaken and all the children of men shall seek refuge in caves and rocky places. And concerning that time, it's written, they shall go into the holes of the rocks of the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord uh, and for the glory of his majesty when he was risen to shake the earth. See, it's a quotation from Isaiah, just like the apostles always do. The glory of his majesty refers to Messiah. When he, when he shall reveal himself in the land of Galilee. For in this part of the Holy Land, the desolation first began. Well, it did uh, in the days of the Assyrians, and it did in the days of the Romans. The Roman conquest began in Galilee. And therefore, he will manifest himself there first, and from there, begin to war against the world. Redemption coming from the Galilee. 